0: You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. It's good to see you. I ask you to please turn in your Bibles or your device to Exodus 15. And if you've been with us throughout the series on Exodus, you know the drama that's been unfolding in this book. Uh, The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, and God speaks to Moses from a burning shrub and tells him to confront Pharaoh, uh, to demand that he let God's people go. After Pharaoh's refusal and plague after plague unleashed on Egypt, Pharaoh finally lets the people go, only to chase them down again at the edge of the Red Sea. But then the Lord shows everyone that dead ends aren't always the end. And he splits the sea and the the people march through, delivered. the waters crash back on the Egyptian army and the people are saved. Now, what would your response be as you stood on that shore? As your feet stood on the Red Sea shore and as chariot buggies floated to the surface, what would you think? The nation of Israel looks behind them and sees the wake of God's power, and sees the bodies of these dead warlords washing up on the shore. And they react the way that we all should. And they react the way that many of us have already reacted this morning. Worship. They respond and worship in Exodus 15. They sang in the victory, and so do we. So as we see in Exodus 15, what we see is now this song of victory, this song of redemption. And so as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of this hymn, the reading of this song of redemption, beginning in verse 1. And our brother Moses tells us by the Spirit, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord. For he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. He threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The floods cover them. They sank to the depths like a stone Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. You overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. The water heaped up at the blast from your nostrils. The current stood firm like a dam. The watery depths congealed into the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified at their expense. I will draw my sword, my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. When the people's hear, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan will panic. Terror and dread will fall on them. They will be still as a stone because of your powerful arm until your people pass by, Lord, until the people whom you purchase pass by. You will bring them in. Plant them on the mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses with his chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the water of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then the prophetess Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women came out following her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he's highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. Let's pray together. Father, you have redeemed us. Not only have you thrown the horse and its rider and Pharaoh's elite forces into the sea, drowning them in the Red Sea, but you have cast our enemy, the ancient serpent who is against us, the cosmic forces and the, and the record of debt that is against us. You have drowned it in the red blood of your Son canceling that record of debt against us, disarming all the rulers and authorities, disarming the chariots, disarming his flaming arrows. And we stand here free. So meet us now, King Jesus, and it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the best metaphors of the Christian life that I've ever seen outside of these walls happened at a winery. Just 45 minutes from here at Bernhardt Winery, they have concerts on Sunday night. And there's obviously wine and there's cheese and food and friends and a band. And the band that was playing this one night, they have many bands, but this one, this is by far the best one, is the Fab Five. And they are a Beatles cover band. And all night long, You've got guys speaking in decent English accents. You got them wearing goofy wigs. You got them dressed up in yellow submarine gear. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band dressed up like the Beatles, singing well-known Beatles songs, and everyone's having a blast. And when the big hits come on, I mean, the mega hits, Hey Jude, everyone's singing for a long time. That's a long song can't buy me love, help. I mean, everyone's singing. It didn't matter if you were white, if you were Hispanic, if you were black. didn't matter if you were above 50 or below 50. It didn't matter if you were poor. It didn't matter if you were rich. It didn't matter if you had gone to college. It didn't matter if you only had your GED. It did not matter. Everyone was responding in joy, to these songs, holding up glasses, eating food, enjoying the company of friends, and dancing together as the drums and cymbals crashed. And even Dallian and I got up and I did some dancing, and there are no videos to be requested of this event. As I watch and I think about that event, what was happening is kind of what happens in Exodus 15. Exodus 15 is a response to to the joy that they have witnessed from God. And here's the first thing we learn about this song, beloved. Worship is our response to redemption. Worship is our response to redemption. Look at verse 1. The very first word of verse 1 keys you in on the importance of this account. Verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang they are standing. The waters have crashed onto the Egyptians. And the next thing is, then they sing. They see their past. They see their slavery. They see their enemy literally dead before them. And they know it's time for church. Miriam grabs her hand drum and all the women dust theirs off too. And they come out and a choir forms and the nation gathers together and they sing the first song of the Bible. This is the first Hebrew praise song. The first time the Hebrew people gather together and sing praises to God. And it's no surprise that it's on the heels of redemption. And so here's what we're seeing. People set free from sin. People set free from slavery in Egypt, the very first impulse they have is to sing because singing has a central place in the Christian life. Do not ever downplay it. The first thing they didn't do is, hey, let's, have, let's write a doctrinal statement. Hey, let's have a Bible study. The first thing they do is they sing together. They see God's mighty power. They see God defeating their enemies and they rejoice. And every time you see these hand drums, these tambourines, and this dancing, it's always a victory song. Always. When you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, later, David defeats his enemies. And what does he do? He's dancing around in his PJs, and drums are going off because he's rejoicing in the victory. Every time you see someone score a touchdown, And they have these elaborate routines, these elaborate choreographed moves. What are they doing? They're celebrating. When someone hits a big three-pointer in a basketball game and runs down the court like they're an airplane like I did a couple times in our summer league, even when we were down by 30 points, I'm running down the court with a three-point airplane because I'm celebrating that I'm not a complete washed-up basketball player. And when James Harden dunks a basketball and he comes down and he grabs his nose like, oh, is his nose bleeding? No, that's his, that's his uh, celebration move. Because he's saying, I got up so high. Oh, I think my nose is bleeding. <laughs> he's celebrating. And when you watch your kids play sports and you pump your fists, you are, you are wired to celebrate. God has created you to celebrate, to rejoice in victory, And he's uniquely wired all of us to sing. Now, that doesn't mean all of us are wired to sing well. Many of us are not. That's why all of us are not given microphones when we come in. But I love when horrible singers praise God. You are my favorite. The people, and here's why. Because you don't care what others think. And the same way when I see a grown man power walking, in our neighborhood. <laughs> he has been liberated from the fear of man. <laughs> and when bad singers praise God, you have crucified your need for approval. You have crucified the need to be accepted. You have crucified wondering, how, oh, I'm not a good singer. People are going to like hear me and think we things. It doesn't matter because you've been redeemed because worship is our response to redemption. Now, worship is more than singing. We know that our lives are meant to be worship unto God, but know that worship is certainly not less. And so I know that across all of our services in a a church like ours and many others, people do struggle to sing and to praise God. If you're struggling with singing praises to God, ask yourself, why? Why do I not sing? Do You think it's lame? If you're a man, do you think it's feminine? Do you think it's silly religiosity? you feel awkward? Here's what you need to know. That if you don't get singing praises to God, you are are stunting your spiritual growth. If you don't get and jive with singing praises to God, you are stunting your own spiritual growth. It's not optional. In fact, it's not only were you created to sing, but you were commanded to sing by God. Psalm 34, the Lord writes to us in this hymn book, sing to the Lord, you his faithful ones. Praise his holy name. Psalm 105, sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell about his wondrous works. And in the New Testament, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Have Bible study, we know that. But Psalms and hymns, in spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And I wonder, do you realize that the biggest book in the Bible isn't Romans? Isn't a book with all of our neatly packed doctrine that we can assess and we can outline and we can diagram? But the biggest book in the Bible is a collection of songs, a Hebrew hymn book given to you for your walk with God. We are a singing people. Do you know what they're doing? In Acts 1, praying, worshiping. You know what they're doing after Jesus rises from the dead? In Matthew 28, and they see him on the mount, they worship him. God created singing as a lyrical Sunday school for your life outside these walls. Because I have no, I am not deceived that you're going to remember my sermon outline, and you're going to be able to remember like, I don't think anyone throughout their life this week is driving and just reciting our church's doctrinal statement to themselves. But you will drive and sing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Man of sorrows. What? These songs become a portable theology for you in all of life it is a portable edition of your theology, a way to recall the power and promises of God. And so, if you aren't into singing praises to God, you just stand there like a statue during the songs on Sundays, like one of the frozen chosen. Do you really know what God has done for you? Do you really know what God has done for you? Because this is their response. Look at verse 1. So, Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord. So here's the resolve. I will do this. Why? Next stanza. For he is highly exalted and he has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. This is the opening of the song describing what all of our worship is like. Right here, beloved. If you know these two things, you will sing. And if you are stunted on any one of these things, you will not sing. We sing... Who God is, highly exalted, none like him. And we sing what God did. He'd thrown the horse and rider into the sea. He defeated Egypt. He, He set me free from my sins. He set me free from my addictions. He set me free from heading straight to hell. See, these people were actually redeemed. They saw chariot buggies floating to the surface. They saw their oppressors washed up on the shore, and they couldn't help but respond. So what about you? Why do you sing? Or why don't you? See, the way sometimes American Christians, the way we typically view worship on Sunday mornings, we view it as mood music. Got to get some Austin Stone just right. Get us in the mood. Get us ready for the sermon. Turn on some Tomlin. Got to get me in the mood. We're, we act like music is going to get us feeling right. Okay, now, okay, yeah, now I feel you know, ready to worship God, and now I'm ready for the sermon. And people think they walk in, oh, I'm already ready for the sermon. I don't need to be, I don't need mood music. Just get me to the sermon. Both approaches are wrong. Singing isn't mood music, our songs are a military march. Our songs are battle cries from the shore of victory. See, the Hebrews saying this on the Red Sea, fresh off the victory the Lord had accomplished for them. And you come in here on Sunday mornings, if you are in Christ, with your feet firmly planted on the shore of the empty tomb and the cross. And you you know the victory that Christ has won for you in the background, and you sing. And every day of our lives, we look behind us and see the cross where alas did our Savior bleed. And a tomb that once held him But up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. And he won the victory. So victory in Jesus, our Savior forever. He washed me and bought me with his redeeming blood. And he loved us ere we knew him. And all our love is due him. Because he won the victory over all of your sins. The secret sins your public sins, he won the victory over all of them. And here's what I do know about me. The more real the gospel is to me, the more ready I am to sing. The more real the gospel is to me, the more real that rough-hewn Roman cross is to me, and the more real this echoey tomb somewhere in a garden somewhere in Jerusalem is real to me, the more ready I am to sing. So how real is Jesus to you today? Not how real American Christianity is. Not how, how real, you know, come in the churches. How real is Jesus to you today? How real are your real sins? And how real is his forgiveness? How real is his love? Wherever you fall on the spectrum, singing is one of the ways that keep you surging forward. Because as we see from this hymn, singing praises... These are the sermons you preach. See, I'm not the only one that preaches on Sundays. You are preaching too. You are preaching songs to yourself, and you are preaching songs to one another. So look at verse 1. I will sing to the Lord. So yes, worship is God. We're exalting Him. We're praising Him. We're rejoicing of what He has done. But we preach to ourselves and each other because songs remind us what is true. Songs. We sing on Sunday. They untangle the belief, the unbelief you drag in here. The songs that we just sang, they untangle the unbelief that you've brought in here today. Singing about the gracious Savior over my ruined life. Because we come in here with our sins. We come in here with things that we've ruined, things that we've destroyed, things that we've just totally failed in. And we feel way down, like, oh, does God really love me? Am I really forgiven? Can, can I recover from this? And you sing, gracious Savior of my ruined life. So we're cutting the head off of these lies that I don't have hope. There is no future for me. And when we sing songs that, about God's grace and his mercy, we are severing the head of that serpent that says, your sins have ruined you. And we're destroying the lies of legalism we hear in our community. If I don't read my Bible enough, I'm not loved. If I don't serve enough, if I don't pray enough, I'm I'm not godly enough. I'm not going to be accepted by God. And we sing amazing grace to destroy those works-based salvations ideas that we smuggle in on Sunday. And when we sing of our future, that when we've been there 10,000 years, you are reminding yourself, I am a co-heir with Christ. It doesn't matter what my 401k says. I have a great future. It doesn't matter what the lies of this world I'm trying to believe. And as the Hebrews sang this, they're reminding themselves of what God did and who God is. And they're reminding each other. It's not like when they were saying to each other, you threw the Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea as they seen this to God. It's not like God's going, you're right. Thank you for reminding me. I've been so busy up here maintaining the universe, I forgot I did all that. No, we sing these things to remind ourselves and each other. It's like Jesus doesn't need to be reminded, hey, you died on the cross. We're being reminded. He died on the cross. We're being reminded. I've been crucified with Christ. All I am, my life defined by crucified with Christ. Because songs are, And singing praises are the sermons you preach, and they are a way that spiritually align you back to God's glory. Singing praises are a way of spiritual alignment back to God's glory as you sing who God is. Look at verse 2. The Lord is my strength. If you write in your Bible, which I always recommend, underline, look at all the my's here. The Lord is my strength and my song, He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. So, this is what the Hebrews look at. They see all the plagues, they remember their fears, they remember the Red Sea miracle, and they conclude this The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my strength. And when we say the Lord is our strength, you know what else we're saying? I have none. I have no strength of my own. I have no other option. No one else can match the Lord. I have no ability to save myself. I have no strength to change myself. I have no promising future outside of the Lord. He is my strength. And I love the next one. This is our anthem. The Lord is my song. You know what that means? He is my center. You sum up Exodus 15, you sum up the Red Sea hymn, you get the Lord. You sum up all the songs we sing at Redeemer, you get the Lord. You sum up the entire Bible, what you get is the Lord. Worship is pointedly God-centered because that's where we need to look. We can so easily just begin to think about ourselves, think about our own lives, think about what we need to do, think about how we're in charge and our decisions and what we've done. But worship brings us back and says, no, the Lord. Verse 2, now what about the Lord? He's my strength and song, and he has become my salvation, him and him alone. This is my God. You know what that is? This is theology. Theology means words about God. And so when he says, this is my God, he is saying, look at my theology. He's my strength. He's my song. He's my salvation. Because singing is an act of theology, lyrically. This is God. All creatures of our God and King, this is our God. Praise Him. This is our God. We've been crucified with Him. Praise Him. This is our God, Savior of our ruined life. This is our God. He was crucified, but He rose. Praise Him. That's why Kevin goes through our songs, making sure they say true things about God. Because when we sing these songs together, what we're saying, we're saying, this is God. That's why there are songs that you hear on Christian radio that, you know, they have some good things in them. But... You, maybe you've wondered, how come we've never done that song on Sunday morning? Because maybe there's something about that song where, we, where Kevin and the elders, like, you know, it's got some good stuff in it, but there's a couple of lines that this really doesn't portray, this is my God. And that's why we've even tweaked some songs that we sing. You, maybe you've heard a different version on the radio, like, man, what? I thought it used to go like this, and we changed it because we think it's more accurate to say, no, this is God. Even the old hymn by Charles Wesley that says, he, Charles wrote, he emptied himself of all but love. We changed it because that's not true. We love the rest of the song, but we changed that line. He emptied himself to show his love. You can tell a church's theology by the songs they sing better than the sermons you hear and better than a doctrinal statement on the website. You can tell my theology by what I preach. So what? You can tell the church's theology by the songs they sing together. We praise God for who he is. Like this song, verse three. Yahweh, the Lord is a warrior. The basketball fan inside of me is being rebuked. (laughs) He is the true warrior. Literally in Hebrew, friends, this phrase is Yahweh, God's name, Yahweh is a man of war. He is not some old man in heaven with a long white beard down to his ankles. He is a man of war. He is the true and better Jack Bauer. He is the true and better Jason Bourne. He is the true and better William Wallace and Ethan Hunt. He is a man of war. He defeats the dragon and gets the girl his bride. He wins what you could not, he fights what you would lose. The Lord is a warrior. That's why verse 11, you can skip over. He says, Lord, who is like you among the gods? This is who God is. This is what we've been hearing. There is no one like you. You That's why I love the song that we sing that says, you have no rival. You have no equal. And the reason we need to sing that is because what do we hear in the world every week? There are rivals to God. That getting drunk is just as good, just as fulfilling, just as satisfying. Being promiscuous is just as satisfying, just as enjoyable. Doing your own thing is just as satisfying, just as enjoyable as walking with God. That's the exact same thing Serpent told Eve in the garden. The reason why God doesn't want you to eat this fruit is because he's holding out on you. He knows that as soon as you eat, you'll be just like him. But instead, God says, no, I have no rival. I have no equal. See, God knows this. We're reminding ourselves and each other. That there is no competitor to the Lord. There is no Nike to his Adidas. There is no Ford to his Chevy. I'm not endorsing either product, just showing the differences. There is no Whataburger to his In-N-Out. There is no rival. We praise him for who he is, reminding ourselves and each other every Sunday and during the week when we crank up those songs of who he is and we sing and you preach what God has done. Look at verse 4. What do they sing? He threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. They remind each other for for generations of this song. And the elite officers were drowned. The, The floods covered them. They sank into the depths like a stone. They rejoice in God, defeating their enemies. And what I love about this, even though it feels like, golly, it's kind of gory and ugh, but no, here's the point. It's specific. Worship is always specific. Never vague generalities. We worship God for particular, exact, specific things he has done for us. You set me free from this sin. You set me free from the wrath of God to come. You set me free from the satanic powers who want to ruin me and destroy me. He he gave you new life. You itemize what the Lord has done for you. Bringing you here, you recount the many blessings of God and how Jesus went to the cross for you and how, look at verse nine. This is an odd, like kind of bracing moment in the song. Now the enemy sings. Verse nine, the enemy said, they take on the voice of Pharaoh and not just Pharaoh, but the voice of the serpent. I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified at their expense. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. But what? But with your breath, with a puff of air from your nostrils, God, you destroyed them. So you have this battle of how you have the serpent and you have Pharaoh saying, my hand will destroy them. But that hand is nothing compared to the nail scarred hand of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, the serpent comes to steal, to kill and destroy. That's what you're hearing in verse 9. But Jesus arrives and says, he will not steal, kill, and destroy my sheep because I will be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And I will be killed on the cross. And my body will be destroyed. And I will become a cold corpse on a slab. And I will rise again from the dead. With one puff of air out of my nostrils three days later, I will win the victory for my people. And so we sing in the victory of the cross. So if you know what Jesus has done for you, you have infinite reasons to sing that you won't be punished for your sins, but you are forgiven. That your sin won't drag you down into hell, but that you're forgiven. That you are now in this non-grudge-holding relationship with God where he has nothing against you. But now he is totally for you because of Christ. That you won't be tossed into the lake of fire on judgment day. That you are guaranteed to make it to the new Jerusalem. That when that trumpet blares, your body will rocket out of the ground and you will meet the Lord in the air and you will be with him always. Selah. And that you are promised to rise in a sin-free, cancer-proof body. And that you are loved forever because of Christ. Beloved, what has the Lord done for you? What has the Lord done for you? Remember and sing who he is. Remember and sing what he has done. And remember and sing what he promises. Look at verse 6. If you, As we read, you may have noticed this, this theme of hands being mentioned. And hand, the hand of God, the right hand of God. It's an expression of power and might. Look at verse 6. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. This is a promise. God promised he would do these things. Back in Exodus chapter three, before Moses goes to Pharaoh, as God speaks to him from the burning bush, he tells him before the plagues, he says, go to Pharaoh. And I know he won't listen, but know this, Exodus 3.20. When I stretch out my hand and I strike Egypt, when I bring that haymaker on Egypt, it will land. All my miracles that I will perform, and after that, he will let you go. So they know this, God's going to stretch, when he stretches out that hand, and now they sing, your right hand, God. Shattered the greatest empire at the world at this time. Your right hand set us free. You fulfilled your promise, God. This is what they're singing. Great are you, God. What does this mean for you? It means you attack your doubts with the promises of God. You assail your doubts with the assurances of God. Because God has promised to love you forever. God has promised to bring you home. And God has promised to present you blameless before him at the end of the age. And God has promised he will be with you always. Because of verse 13. Why can we trust it verse 13? With your faithful love you will lead the people you have redeemed. This is the anthem of the entire Christian life now. With your faithful love is how you will lead us. And this phrase faithful love just means really covenant keeping love, covenant keeping God, promise keeping. Because we have You and I, we all have a love for God that is fickle. That's all over the place. We're up, we're down. It's noticeable. It's forgotten. We're ashamed. We're excited about God. We we hide from God. We run to God. We're, We're not constant, none of us. But God is constant. With his faithful love, he leads us. Not with a whip. If you view your Bible-reading plan as a whip, burn it and set it back up again and be led by his faithful love. If you, if you view coming to church as some kind of whip of God that you, you have to come here, you're viewing it all wrong. See, there is no shifting shadow of God's love. He keeps his promises when we cannot. Because we aren't strong enough to keep our promises. And we aren't selfless enough to keep our promises. But God is both. We see that Jesus is selfless enough to keep his promises by humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And Jesus is strong enough to keep his promises because he rises again from the dead saying, death won't even stop me from loving you. Death can't even keep me. Me not having a pulse will not keep me from keeping my promises to you. And God promises to lead us by his love. And look at where he leads us, verse 13. You will guide them to your holy dwelling. So not only sing who God is, not only sing what God has done, not only sing what God promises, but we you sing and you preach to yourself where God is taking you, where God is taking you, you sing about your future. Look at verse 17. They sing at the end. You will bring them in and plant them on the holy mountain of your possession. Lord, you've prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands, see, your hands have established the sanctuary. The Lord will reign forever and ever. You know all the favorite old hymns that you love? Follow the exact same plan. Your life before Christ, what it was like, what God has done for you in Christ, and what God will do for you in the future. Amazing grace follows this. It as well follows this. All our great hymns follow this trajectory right from here. Sing about your future, because your future is incredibly bright. Jesus says to all of his sheep, to the sheep in this room, to the sheep in Mumbai, India, and to the sheep in the first century, and to the sheep standing here on the Red Sea shore, I am preparing a place for you. In my father's house, and there are many rooms, and I'm making it for you specific, personalized for you. Jesus is preparing a place for you, Lawson Flowers. Jesus is preparing a place for you, Ryan Snyder. Jesus is preparing a place for you, Debbie Perkle, Matt J. See, Jesus, he tells us, yes, look back to the Red Sea shore but also look forward to the shore of your future home. See, worship takes us to remember the account of his mercy, and then worship also has this ache for the future that is to come with Christ. So they sang about their promised land, and so do we. We sing about our future because it exalts the giver of that future, and it exalts the one who guarantees that future. And if you look in Revelation, you see what the saints are singing, also next to another sea. In Revelation 15, the Apostle John says, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had won the victory over the beast, its image and the number of its name, were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. And they sang what? They sang of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. This is the remix Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you. Edom, Canaan, Philistia, United States, Brazil, Australia all the nations will come before you because of your righteous acts that have been revealed. This is the real sea to shining sea. From the Red Sea to this sight that John saw. Those who receive the victory over the satanic powers, those who receive the victory over Egypt, and those whose record of debt has been canceled against them, disarming all the rulers and authorities, sing this song too with the song of Moses. Christians sing. We always have. And we always will. Heaven is not this eternal worship service. It is eternal worship. But we will sing and we will live in the victory of Christ. And we must be a singing people. We should be marked by singing. As people think about our church and think about us, think about Christians, they should think singing people. And if you don't enjoy singing praises to God, I'm just going to be totally straight with you. If you don't enjoy singing praises to God, you might be more fit for hell than you are for heaven. Because hell is the only place in the universe where there will not be God's people rejoicing together over what God has done. So maybe you haven't been forgiven of your sins. Maybe you need to look to the Lord and say, forgive me, welcome me into your presence by the blood of Christ. Or maybe you think Beatles songs are more exciting than the blood of Christ. But beloved, sing because you are saved. And sing like you are saved. So let's sing in the victory of Christ. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.